Welcome to Important Not Important. My name is Quinn Emmett. And my name is Brian Colbert Kennedy. Hey, and this is a podcast where we dive into a specific topic or question affecting you and everybody else on the planet right now or in the next 10 years or so. Uh, if it can kill us all or turn us into a Cylon. Uh, the What's human, a Cylon? The human looking. Have you seen Battlestar Galactica? I don't know. Oh, man, we got to go, folks. Okay. No, um, wait, you haven't seen the reboot started, uh, 2007? No, I mean, I've heard of it, but so Cylon's like some sort of space alien. Here's the deal. Mm-hmm. Save that for fun talk. Okay. We'll be there in a minute. Uh, specifically the human ones. Brian, don't know what that is. <laughs> Anyways, um, we're, we're, we're into it, man. Uh, our guests are scientists, doctors, activists, engineers, uh, politicians, astronauts. We even had a reverend. Um, we work toward, together towards action steps our listeners can take with their voice, their vote, and their dollar. This is your friendly reminder that you can send us questions, thoughts, feedback, anything you want, really. Mm-hmm. Keep it PG-13. Sure. Uh, yeah. All right. R max. Uh, uh, you can send us anything on Twitter at important.imp or mm-hmm. email us, <clears throat> pardon me, at funtalk at important.important.com. Mm-hmm. You can also join thousands of other smart folks and subscribe to our free weekly newsletter at importantnotimportant.com. Hey, Brian. Yeah. This week's episode is where does Ebola go from here? You have to we have to switch this out so sometimes you say the all the words. Our guest today is Karen Huster from mm-hmm. uh MSF or Doctors Without Borders, where she's currently bouncing between the Democrat Democratic Republic of Congo and Mozambique. Mm-hmm. She's trained as a nurse, having spent a decade in the trauma ICU before branching out, flinging herself really right into it, uh into the humanitarian emergencies. Uh, across the world. Uh, yeah, she's been everywhere. Of which there are plenty, and and she is kind of the Forrest Gump of of humanitarian field nurses. If it's a health related outbreak, if it's a storm related outbreak that turns into a health related outbreak, she's there and is inspiring as hell. And uh, we learned a lot today about Ebola and DRC and uh, previous outbreaks, current outbreaks, where it could go from here if it's coming here. Um. Mm-hmm. And and uh, how countries can can protect against it and how what a difference that make and and what a, how invaluable people like Karin are it's just <laughs> wild preposterous man all right I, I think it speaks for itself let's go talk to Karin there we go our guest today is Karin Huster and uh, together we're going to ask where does Ebola go from here uh, Karin welcome. Thank you. We're so happy to have you. Thank you for making the time for us today. Can you just start us off by letting uh, us and everybody know who you are and what you do? Yes, I'm uh, Karen Huster, and uh, I work with uh, MSF, Doctors Without Borders. And so since we're talking about Ebola, I was uh, in, uh, in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, started in August of 2018 when we had the 10th Ebola outbreak for the for the country. And what is now the second biggest outbreak. And I'm a field coordinator, again, for Doctors Without Borders, working on emergency missions. So this was, uh, this, this was one of the missions that I did. Sure. And, and we don't usually get into tell us your whole life story because we like to look forward. But um, I, I know that you have kind of been everywhere on these emergency missions. Could yeah. you tell us a little bit just about... Uh, I guess the past few years and and your experiences and the places you've been nothing too extensive. So 
pretty much, uh, if, if it has to do with Ebola, I started in 2014 uh, working on the West Africa outbreak, which was the biggest uh, Ebola outbreak that we've ever had. And then uh, life took me on uh, on uh, yellow fever in the Congo, on uh, malnutrition in Nigeria. I went to Mosul for the war and Haiti for hurricanes, Bangladesh for the refugees, and then, uh, and then uh, succeeding missions in uh, the DRC for uh, the Ebola outbreak. And today I'm in Mozambique uh, working on the uh, cyclone aftermath. Sure, sure. Just uh, unreal devastation there. Wow. Well, I'm sure they're thankful to, to have you there. C- can I ask what what prompted you to to get into this uh, line of work? Uh, I, I believe are, are you trained as a as a nurse? Uh, I guess what is what is your background and and what inspired you to live this life? Before we get into the rest of our conversation. Yeah, so I actually, so I used to work for Microsoft. Uh, for 12 years, I was a program manager working on Word and designing features for, uh, for, that, uh, for that piece of software. And then at some point in time, I decided that um, I wanted to do something a little bit more meaningful with my life. And, uh, and so I went back to school at the University of Washington in Seattle and, and uh, got a nursing degree uh, worked for 10 years as a nurse in the trauma intensive care unit and, uh, and that got old after 10 years. So I, I went and got a master's in public health and my first sort of stint in this area was in Lebanon working with the Syrian refugees. So that was uh, back in 2012, 13 when the Syrian refugee crisis was, you know, sort of just started, it had started in 2011. Mm-hmm. Um, and really was kicking in with a lot of refugees coming into Lebanon. Wow! Wow! Did yeah, anything okay. happen while <laughs> Did anything happen while you were at Microsoft that made you? Was it one thing that made you think, "Well, I should go do something bigger and and better and more impactful," or was it you just exhausted using Microsoft Word every day? Yeah, I mean, not a good program. <laughs> <laughs> just no, 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 no. I mean, you know, for for. Sometimes life takes you in in un, you know in unplanned directions, and actually Microsoft was an unplanned direction, um, and um, and it was fantastic for twelve years. But after a while, you you get back to what it is that you really care about, and I and I felt yeah. that uh, well, I was I was more drawn towards trying to make people's lives a little bit better. And, you know, being a nurse, working in the hospital was one person at a time, uh, but it was in a very privileged country and privileged settings, uh, right. having access to the best uh, of everything. And so I, you know, my, my, my heart was more drawn towards places where people didn't have that chance, but still I mm-hmm. thought deserved the same. So that's sort of how I started. So wonderful. Well, that's exceptional. I mean, thank goodness for people like you. Right. Seriously. That's wild. Groovy. Not really, right. but... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Karin, so uh, we're going to uh, sort of go over some some quick context uh, for our, our our topic and our, our question today, uh, and then mm-hmm. uh, get to some, some uh, action-oriented questions and uh, steps that uh, we can all take. Uh, that get to the heart of why we should care about uh, what you're doing. 
and uh, what we can all do about mm-hmm. it to help. Does that sound good? That sounds perfect. So, Karin, uh, we'd like to start with one important, seemingly silly uh, question, but we encourage you to be bold and honest, uh, something to set the tone here. So instead of saying, tell us your entire life story, uh, we like to ask, why are you vital to the survival of the species? <laughs> no, uh, may, may, maybe the only thing that that uh, that I can answer to, to this question is that maybe... I yeah, I try to 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 instill you know the, the, some hope about about us somewhere you know trying to trying to do something that feels meaningful that is important that maybe you know not many people care about but uh, trying to say you know hey we should be caring about this so so maybe in that sense but otherwise <laughs> that's that's. Uh, I don't think of myself that grandly, you know. Oh well, well we think of you that way. So yeah, we'll uh, we'll say it for you. Awesome. <laughs> well, listen. Uh, all right, let me establish. Uh, just throw out a little context here, and, and please correct me in all the many, many ways. I'm sure I'm incorrect here. Uh, not going to try to go into too much detail, but we, we've talked about infectious disease before, again, with uh, Dr. Nahid Badalia and a couple others to, to, to focus on sort of Ebola today. And I, I do want to touch at the end about Mozambique as well, because obviously we can't ignore that. And that is something that's probably going to happen more often down the line. But anyways, yep. uh, what, is, what is Ebola? I feel like at least Americans, which are probably the majority of our audience, though we've got listeners everywhere, you know, have heard about it, have have thought it was coming at some point. It wasn't. They get scared about outbreaks. They get scared about it, getting into the flight system, things like that. But let's talk about what it is and where it is and, and why it is. So uh, it, it is a it is a viral hemorrhaging fever of humans and other primates. And, and I believe there is six distinct but somewhat related Ebola viruses, uh, and I think they're named mm-hmm. uh, for the region in which they were found. Is that correct? Yep. Um, and so uh, I believe we, we first found it in uh, or encountered it or had to deal with it, I believe, in, in about 1976, and it sounds like it was simultaneously in the South Sudan uh, and the Democratic Republic of, of Congo, which uh, obviously can't can't seem to shake it. Uh, how does it work? Sign, signs and symptoms typically start uh, two days to three weeks after getting the virus. There's fever, sore throats, muscular pain, um, headaches, and then we've got vomiting and diarrhea and rash, uh, decreased function of the liver and the kidneys. Uh, some people bleed both internally and externally, and it has... A, a very high risk of of death, I believe. Between uh, one of the statistics I found said between twenty five and ninety percent of those infected, with an average of about fifty percent. Jeez, uh, it sounds like that comes most often from low blood pressure, from fluid loss, and is anywhere from six to sixteen days after symptoms appear. So it's not slow. From what I understand, it spreads uh, through direct contact with body fluids, uh, such as blood from infected humans or other animals, uh, can also occur from contact with items recently contaminated with body fluids, of course. Fun story, fruit bats can carry it, uh, Brian, but they are not affected by it, which must be nice. That's wild. Um, uh, I I think as Karen alluded to, the largest outbreak was a few years ago in West Africa, and she was there, uh, resulting in about 28,000 cases and 11,000 deaths. That was mostly uh, shut down finally in 2016, but now it's it's back in the Democratic Republic of Congo the past uh, year and a half, two years or so. And, and for a variety of reasons, we're having a hell of a job 
uh, containing it. And, and the reasons are both fascinating and complicated. And that's kind of what I want to get into today. Mm-hmm. So, Karin, anything I got wrong there? Anything I should correct before we move forward? No, no. I think you're you're being very close to being a Ebola expert. Oh, oh, God. No. Well, hold no, on. No, 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 no. no, no, no. no. <laughs> that was all luck. Yeah, no, no, no. That's, no, that's, no, that's, I'm impressed. Uh, well, well, <laughs> hold, hold your breath. Uh, it's, uh, it only gets uglier <laughs> from here. So, Karin, can you talk us through uh, the, the current outbreak? I know you're in Mozambique, but in the Democratic Republic of Congo, how it started yep. and, and, and how things are, are going there. And then we'll get into the specifics of why this one is so complicated. So this uh, outbreak in Congo, so, so, so for your listeners, uh, it's really important to know that this is not the first time that Congo is dealing with an outbreak. In fact, uh, Congo was one of the first countries that identified uh, um, uh, Ebola, and, and Ebola Zaire is named after uh, uh, Congo, the old name of Congo, which was Zaire. So mm-hmm. it is actually their 10th uh, outbreak of, of Ebola, and it is now, sadly, the uh, second largest outbreak uh, ever. It started in uh, August, I think August 1st, 2018, just a few weeks after uh, Congo just finished uh, an Ebola outbreak in Equator, maybe even a, a week. And then, and then this outbreak happened uh, thousands of miles away, seemingly no relationship. And so it happened in a place in North Kivu, which is really a, a tough place for an Ebola outbreak to happen because uh, it is an area of conflict. And so, and it was an area that had never seen Ebola. Wow. Today, it's, uh, we're nine months later, pretty much, and we're at uh, 1,180 cases. Uh, and we are not at all close to seeing the end of this. What is really frustrating is that we know everything we want, uh, we need to know. We know how to take care of this illness. We know what to do. We now have tools that we didn't have for the 2014 epidemic. So, for example, we have vaccines now. Uh, we have treatments. And yet, this thing just is uh, getting the better of us. There, today was actually a record. It's kind of sad that you're calling me on this day because it's uh, the day where we've had 18 uh, new cases in one day. Um, oh, and wow. out of those 18 cases, eight cases were uh, community deaths. So it's not even cases that were, you know, confirmed Ebola cases. Mm-hmm. Out of those 18, eight were dead and in the community. So that means that we never got to reach them. And and that oh, has man. been the the really the 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 crux of this epidemic, which has been the lack of uh, understanding uh, of what the community is going through and the community understanding what, uh, what, you know, what this is all about. So um, we're sadly nowhere, you know, uh, getting a, getting a handle on this, even though it's, it's not a very intense epidemic because you're not seeing hundreds of cases every day, like you saw in 2014, but you're seeing that we cannot get a hold of this epidemic. We cannot control it. We cannot get it under control despite those, those lowish numbers. And, and that is just mind-boggling. 
Yeah, I have to say, so for you, you had said that this is the 10th time that they've that the Congo's gone through this. And I guess to, you know, the average uh, listener hearing something like that would say, oh, OK, 10 times by now they must have uh, just keep making progress and it must they must be shorter and deaths must be less. Yet it's the second largest one. Is it just that there's something different about the virus that hasn't been identified yet? No, I don't think so. I mean, uh, there is nothing that says that much. I think. Uh, yeah. I think we, you know, one of the things that I'm seeing is that there is a, a huge push on technology. There is a huge push on vaccines. There is a huge push on treatments. So, and we we have those. We're getting there. They're not perfect, but I mean, they mm-hmm. certainly make a difference. Sure. But we haven't gone to do the work on the basics. And the basics is, you know, sort of this anthropological work that we need to do. It's, it's me going in the community and understanding what uh, the people in the communities are concerned about, what their understanding is of the disease, you know, what their behavior is towards the disease. And nobody spent the time, and Doctors Without Borders included at the very beginning, None of us spent enough time with the community trying to get them to to understand and us getting to their, you know, to, to, on the same page with them, at, you know, as to what this Ebola disease was. And so we're back in 2014 where people are, are not understanding why we're telling them to put body, you know, dead bodies in, in plastic bags and why... You know, people are not understanding our behaviors, our scientific white people behaviors, because we haven't done the basic job of, of explaining uh, to them, you know, why we're doing these things. And we're not making the effort of finding different ways to do the same thing, but taking into account their culture and, and their way right. of doing things. And, and I think that's why we're, we're not there today at all. That's really interesting. So we kind of, not not to minimize your work in any way, but it, it sounds like we, we blew in and did sort of some of the medical and technological things, but didn't do the anthropology work to find out what that area, how that area moved and lived and understood and what, what their fears were. Is that right? A hundred percent. I mean, that's exactly that. You know, it's, it, it does you no good to have treatments when people come too late to get those treatments, right? It's as if you, if you were in Europe and or in, in the U.S. and somebody comes to you with stage four breast cancer, and you go, well, Jesus, you know, if you had come and done your mammogram and your yearly, your yearly checks, this would have never happened. We would have caught it at stage zero or one, mm. and you would have never died. And but now I'm sorry, I don't have anything to offer you. And it's exactly like that. And um, by the way, in the U.S., we still have that issue, right? There are some areas in the U.S. where uh, people do not have access or we have not understood how people uh, uh, really work. We, we haven't had access to those populations and we have those same issues. So rich people, you know, people with with the means might have that information, but other people don't. And it's it's exactly the same in, in Africa or in the DRC right now, where some people do have access to that information, but most mm. of the people that are affected by this illness and, and these are people, you know, in, in 
in uh, in pretty remote places. We don't. We haven't taken the time. We assume they understand. We assume they have the same level of understanding that we do, and we assume they would understand that uh, that that a vaccine or a treatment is what is going to save them. But but that's not what they understand. Sure. So I just want to back up real quick. So so we mentioned that this uh, in this case, and it's in a few areas. Uh, at least one of them hadn't seen it before, but obviously these things don't just pop out of nowhere, which I'm sure some, some Mm. folks assume can happen, but that's not really the way a virus works. Uh, Where and how does it start in an area like that? And how important is it to find that, that source? Uh, Is it fruit bats or is it uh, someone who has traveled into the area? Do we know for this situation, et cetera, et cetera? No, actually we don't know. So it is really important to try to get to the index case. So the index case is you try to go back. I mean, just as a policeman, you you try to go back to the source of of, of the outbreak. Like who who is the first person you can identify who right. fell ill of this disease, and what did this person do? Did they go in the in the bush? Did they did they eat a, a bat? Did they you know what is it that they did? And and to my knowledge, this. We we still don't know. You know, we we know that you know of the Zaire strain. We know that uh, we seem to know that there is no link, no relationship between this outbreak, the tenth outbreak, and the ninth outbreak, which are you know thousands of miles apart. But I mean, people travel, so it, you know it could have been somebody. So we we still don't understand. You know what it is. There are so many bats in this area that it could very well come from a bat. You know, we just, we just haven't put the puzzle together yet. Um, but it always, uh, you know, starts or it often starts from uh, bat populations because they are one of the, one of the carriers of the disease. And so um, people can either, you know, depending on that, they could be hunting for bats and eating them, touching mm-hmm. them, and then they touch themselves and, there are so many different ways one can one can get it if you are in contact with an infected animal that uh, it's not easy to you know make some I mean it's, it's it's difficult to make assumptions as to what happened exactly. Sure, sure, mm, of course. Wow. Okay, so back to the people element. What are the anthropological things that we have learned, and and you know what's different about uh, the DRC versus versus West Africa from a people's perspective. Yeah. yeah, I guess you, you, you mentioned, you know, how we, we didn't spend enough time early up front, you know, really yeah. understanding yeah, yeah. the place and, mm-hmm. and the culture and the anthropology of it. Um, you know, I guess, were there assumptions that went in from, from previous outbreaks that didn't hold true or, or are there differences in how it, uh, it operates and we need to operate there versus, versus West Africa, for instance, where it was so big before, but we spent a significant amount of time and, no, and eventually think, succeeded? Yep. No, I think that's the same frustrating thing is that we keep on making the same mistakes. Mm-hmm. You know, we we came out of 2014, you know, and so in 2016, we came out uh, with, you know, the realization that we need to understand people's understanding of disease. You know, people use traditional practitioners, traditional healers, people use different mechanisms to access, you know, for, for health-seeking behaviors. Um, we needed to understand that. It took some time for us in West Africa to understand these things. So, 
than educated people. We we did a lot of community engagement work so that so that people uh, finally trusted us. You know, we we had discussions about burning bodies versus burying bodies, putting white plastic bags versus black plastic bags. We we did all the all this work. You know, I think with the understanding that the community, the culture is important in Ebola. And so one would assume that we would do the same thing uh, anywhere, right? So in the U.S., in the DRC, it doesn't matter. Um, but we we came into this outbreak, um, I think, again, with this, with this sort of, you know, European, Western worldview of, of things. And we thought, okay, well, we have a vaccine. We have six new treatments. And uh, this is this is going to solve our problem, and we again uh, put uh, as a second step, you know, as a sort of after afterthought, community engagement. Whereas it should be completely the reverse. Community engagement should be the first thing you do when you have an Ebola outbreak. You need to invest time reaching out in the communities, doing this, it's, it's really basic work of, of gaining the trust of the population. I mean, it's basic, but it's not basic. But, but you know, it doesn't involve billions of dollars and years of research and pharmaceutical industries. It involves having a brain and, and, and sitting down and taking some time and, and not being arrogant about, about who we are. And we didn't do that. Um, we, did, we do this after and so we we did exactly the same mistake. Um, we, you know, and then it became uh, a big problem in the DRC and in Catois. So when I was there, I did three three missions there. So in August when it started, then I went back in November, December, and then I went back again this time. And um, and uh, the last time we were attacked, so people burned our Ebola treatment center. Uh, wow. They attacked uh, people. They were looking for doctors, you know, who they believed uh, was killing people. And so clearly, I mean, the, these things, they were not, you know, these things were actually a mix of mistrust of the population towards, you know, uh, um, towards uh, Ebola and people who were working in Ebola. But there was also a mix with, uh, um, you know, political issues, right? Because in this part of the country, in North Kivu, the, there is a deep, deep distrust of government. And so uh, mm. there was also this underlying, underlying tone of, of uh, the government, you know, putting Ebola there to, you know, to cause more trouble. So it's, oh, it's a really multidimensional problem. But the fact of the matter was that people... So, you know, the, the white people, they come, Ebola is a business, and white people come and they take our organs. I mean, there were lots of rumors, lots of, lots of things going around that I think could have been, for the most part, prevented had we done community engagement first and the fancy case management, Ebola treatment centers, fancy treatment, sexy vaccination, sort of mm. after. And I mean, you don't need to do one and then two, but, but, but really community engagement needs to sure. take the forefront of things. But it, it can't be left, like you said, it can't be one or, it doesn't have to be one or two, but it doesn't have to be, it, it shouldn't be left as an afterthought or else you just find yourself in the same situation again. Right. Yeah, 
Yep. Is, yep exactly. Yeah. Is that a pro- is that a problem that the everybody at MSF recognizes and now and going forward now it, it is being changed, and you're going about um, it differently. Definitely, um, um, this was something you know. So usually at MSF we we like to take an entire pack. When it comes to Ebola, it's really important to be present in all the. You typically in a response you have pillars, you know, like a a case management pillar. So this is when you take care of the patient and it's very easy. Uh, Health promotion pillar, a vaccination pillar. So there are basically different areas of a response. And typically we like to, to, we like to do all of those things because then we have control over, over, you know, what are the health promotion messages? What is the community engagement piece um, that is happening? What is you know, in vaccination, what are the messages that are being given? How does vaccination uh, get presented to the population? And for North Kivu, we did not do that because of the um, of the difficulties of 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 the place. You know, from a from mm-hmm. a political uh, perspective, from a violence perspective, we sort of were a little bit too cautious, and uh, we stuck to case management, which is basically working in, a, in an Ebola treatment center. And we did not engage in community engagement, you know, health promotion activities, which we typically do. And, uh, and I think this was a huge, huge mistake. And MSF recognizes it today. Um, I mean, it went so far as, you know, we don't, we don't believe that it's because we didn't do community engagement that our uh, treatment centers got burned, but, but partially it is, you know, because, because clearly people didn't understand what, what these places were about or mm-hmm. did not want these places there because, because they had a different idea of what these places were doing. Sure. Um, so clearly we, we, we view, um, we view North Kivu not as a success so far. And, 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 uh, I mean, yes, we were able to, to have uh, Ebola treatment centers. We treated many people, we saved many people, but uh, we clearly could have done so much better in community engagement. I think it was a lesson learned for us. Sure. Wow. Um, so uh, there's a lot of obstacles to, to you do, doing your job in the most effective way possible. So uh, you mentioned that there's, there's some serious uh, conflict in the area, uh, for example, uh, mm-hmm. Can you tell everyone a little bit about what that conflict actually is and, and further how it's specifically affecting your ability to do your job? Yeah. So, I mean, you know, NSF is, is typically is very, uh, is an organization that's very independent and neutral. So these are, these are some of the, the essential pillars for our work. So we, we go in a, in a in a region and we treat everybody regardless of you know where they come from, uh, you know who they believe in, uh, their mm-hmm. affiliation, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But one of the things that we that is very paramount for us is that we do not uh, um, view secularization of uh, of our of 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 places uh, and especially uh, Ebola treatment centers in this case as the answer to the problem uh, that uh, that exists in, in North Kivu. So in North Kivu, as I said, you know, this, this is, a, is a region of, of, of conflict for a long time. It has uh, about 
Oh, if I say 60, I mean, it's 60 to 100 different armed groups, the ADF being one of them, you know, the Maimais. I mean, it, 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 there is just a, a collective of armed groups that uh, is, is very complex to, to, to understand. Everybody has their own interests, but uh, at the end of the day, the, the distrust of the government uh, in place in Congo is, is pretty strong. So you're coming in, in a region where, um, you know, things are pretty volatile to start with. Um, and so a lot of people, a lot of actors, traditional actors, you know, in, in aid really uh, hesitated to step in because, because it is so volatile. You know, there are a lot of kidnappings, there, are a lot of, there is a lot of violence. And so it makes it a little bit more challenging uh, to do your work. So for us, that, you know, that was one of the reasons why we said, well, we'll, we'll stick to case management. So, you know, uh, building uh, Ebola treatment centers and then um, the, the things that we do most of the time, for example, surveillance, active case finding. So you're really in the community looking for people uh, explaining the disease, you know, health promotion, all these, all these activities that really involve the community. We're not going to do them. Uh, because of the security issues. And I think that came to bite us back um, because we understood at some point in time that this was actually, you know, we were overcautious and we were sort of, we, yeah, we were, we, we were too cautious in, in, in assuming that we just couldn't do community engagement of any kind. Sure. Um, and so we corrected the course, you know, over, you know, from August to now, we, we corrected that course and, and we did become engaged. But it takes time to undo, you know, once you've, once you've, I mean, the months you've lost are, are lost and uh, the epidemic sure. progresses and it's really hard to, to gain back that time. So, so I think, you know, the, this, this was difficult. So the population was, you know, uh, imagining Ebola as being whatever it is that they thought it was, but uh, some some people thought that it was, you know, the government that put this disease there, or sometimes that it was a big business. And so their reaction to it was uh, one of mistrust. And uh, their response to mistrust was to, you know, not always to attack something, but to uh, you know, to, to I mean, they, they, they would show in, in many different ways that uh, that they were not trusting any of these things. And the problem right. was that the reaction of the of, of the government or of the riposte, which was the official, you know, the 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 the, the Congolese uh, Ministry of Health uh, uh, response mechanism to this Ebola outbreak, was to increase uh, uh, securization. So they would want to put, you know. Um, when they would do safe and dignified burials, uh, they would put uh, maybe the police sometimes because they felt that maybe the population uh, would not be, you know, would become angry and would attack the people who were trying to do the safe burial. And so it became this sort of catch-22 where you didn't know who was securizing what and who was attacking whom. But at the end of the day, um, it became uh, an, an atmosphere of, of total mistrust on on every side. They were trying to push to have uh, you know security in front of uh, Ebola treatment units, and that is something we don't want to do. Because if you have a sick person who doesn't trust in the government, but they see that the military is in front of the Ebola treatment unit. The last thing they want to come to is this place because they think right. this is run by the government, you know. 
And so you're stuck as a as, as you know as an organization trying to you know all I care about are my patients and I care about their outcome and I care about making them better and bringing them back you know back alive to their families and I'm having all these obstacles and it's just it's just not helping and so 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 it it was just a it was just a horrible catch twenty two that um, that didn't end very well for us because because the treatment centers were burnt and we ended up deciding that uh, that for the safety of our staff we could not stay in the region. <laughs> wow, that's so wild. Wow, <clears throat> yeah. you, it gives you a new perspective <laughs> to having a tough day at work. <laughs> Jesus, yeah, yeah, uh, it, is, it was a little wild. I agree with you. Yeah. Hey guys, it's Quinn. If you're listening to this, you obviously like podcasts and you probably like music too. On Spotify, you can listen to all of that in one place for free. You don't even need a premium account. On Spotify, you can follow your favorite podcasts so you never miss an episode. You can download episodes to listen to offline wherever you might be. And you can easily share what you're listening to with your friends via Spotify's integrations with social platforms like Instagram. Spotify has a huge catalog of podcasts on every topic, including the one you're listening to right now. You can just search for Important Not Important on the Spotify app or browse podcasts in the Your Library tab. Very convenient. And of course, you can follow us so you never miss an episode of Important Not Important. Uh, Spotify is the world's leading music streaming service and now it can be your go-to for podcasts too. And, and Karn, and so let's take a minute to talk about vaccines. Also, you know, we, vaccines are always in the in the news here. You know, with people not believing in them and somehow mm-hmm. being sure that they cause autism and shit. Uh, you know, and you mentioned that they're a, a new innovation. How how is it going over there with them? Uh, you know, and, and how effective are they when you when you get to use them? So actually, vaccines have been pretty well accepted overall uh, by the population. Um, there are always some people who, you know, think that again, you know, this is uh, this is uh, people for a while before. You know, there were some elections uh, pretty recently, and uh, Kabila, who has been uh, a person who was in power for many many years, uh, and and everybody uh, believed that he would present himself again for the elections. And so what they believed was that this vaccine uh, was, uh, uh, there was a product that would make uh, the people uh, vote for him again, you know. So, so there are all sorts of things that, oh, wow. <laughs> that happened toward, you know, surrounding uh, uh, the, the vaccines. Um, but, but in general, I think people accepted them uh, pretty openly. There, there were as well some, you know, there, there were some issues. There were not enough vaccines. So ideally, you want the whole, you know, if you know a vaccine works, and this one seems to work. We, we've known mm. this since, you know, 2000, I think 16 and 15 in the West Africa epidemic. We finally had those vaccines, but we used them preemptively, you know, as a, as a prevention measure. This is the first outbreak that we use it as a reactive measure. So, uh, ah. and the way they do it is, is they do it as uh, so they say, okay, here is a case, and now we're going to vaccinate all the people who are around this case. So it's called ring vaccination. So you vaccinate the people who are directly contacts of that case, and then this is this is where it's the most important. You vaccinate the contacts of the contacts. So if 
say your father had Ebola or, you know, got Ebola, and then you obviously spend time with your father, you are a contact. But then all your friends who are contacts of you, so you would have to identify them. You know, yes, I, I, I had dinner with uh, John and, and Jim and blah, blah, blah. All these people, these contacts have contacts, the, the outer ring, you know, the, the bigger ring. This right. is the most important ring, actually, to, to, to nail down. Because if you get those people, then you're pretty darn sure that around that case, you've stopped that transmission. Because it takes about seven days for the vaccine to, to, to be, you know, to work. And so um, you, for you, it might be too late because your, your dad might already have given you Ebola. But, but for your friends, um, you know, it, it will take some time for this virus to incubate and probably longer uh, than, uh, than that vaccine. So the vaccine will, will have kicked in by the time you might have had this Ebola from you, you know, or your friends might have had this Ebola from you. So the, the contacts of contacts are the most important to vaccinate. But the problem, so the problem is, that's the problem, is that we cannot vaccinate everybody yet. Uh, we cannot do a blanket sure. geographical vaccination. We don't have enough of those vaccines. It, take, it takes mm. a long time to produce. Uh, mm. the, I, I believe I'm, I'm going on a little bit of a limb here, but but the, but the vaccine makers, you know, right now they are giving those vaccines for free, mm-hmm. and so so it, it's it's not you know something that uh, we can get uh, just you know millions of doses of just like that. Right. So, so that's why they are still, you know, focusing on on highly at risk uh, populations, uh, healthcare workers being one of them, for example. Um, but uh, they cannot just say, okay, everybody in Congo, you'll you'll get vaccinated, and then you know they'll be done. If we did this, probably it would be the best because because uh, you would have, you know, a better, you know, people would be immunized. The problem is, this is still an experimental. Uh, experimental vaccine, even though we, we believe it works quite well, it's still oh, an ep- experimental vaccine, so you cannot give it to everybody. Right. So this isn't, I mean, right. Uh, it certainly can't uh, add it to Americans or Europeans vaccination schedule if, if we can't even, uh, if we can't even blanket the DRC with it. Um, like you said, no. it's being given yeah. away for free, and it's as much as it's working, it's still pretty environmental because usually these things take quite a rollout uh, in a testing to to be to be phased in. Yeah, I so, mean, in the U.S., you would only give it to people, you know, if if it were a risk in the U.S. But since it's a, it's sure. not a risk. I, I mean, yeah, never so, be, uh, yeah. Yeah, and, and and that's what I want to move to because I think during the West Africa one, there was some worry about people, and and you know we. I, I can't remember. I did. I can't remember if we did shut down travel from those uh, countries directly to the U.S. or not. But there was a lot of worry that it would come and and, and issues like that. So uh, let, let's be clear here for everyone: there there is no Ebola Ebola outbreak in the U.S. or in Europe. It's it, it's not coming here anytime soon. Uh, it's not on a flight today. But the the current outbreak is in a bad way, and we're in, and you all are throwing your very best at it, and it's complicated. How likely, considering how long it's gone and what you learned from West Africa and thing like that, that it travels to greater Africa, or let's start with out of the DRC, to greater Africa or, or beyond? Mm. Well, I think this is what everybody has been dreading since August 1st when it broke. You know, it, it's because 
because where it is in North Kivu, it borders a bunch of countries. You know, it's not too far from Sudan. It's not too far you know, from South Sudan. It's not too far from Rwanda. It's not too far from Burundi. I mean, this thing can go, this thing can go very easily. People travel a lot. People, there are a lot of displaced people. So maybe with Ebola, they're going to move back. Maybe they want to seek mm. uh, healthcare because, because they can't seem to find it in the DRC. It's pretty much, you know, a miracle, I will say, that uh, although it's, there is nothing like a miracle, but, but, but it's really <laughs> Thank you for verifying that. that. Yeah. Yes, yes. It, it, science, it's really luck. It. That's right. right. It's science. It's, it, it, it is really lucky it hasn't gone there yet. I mean, it, it was caught once at the border, um, I believe, uh, but uh, but it hasn't, you know, that we know of, it hasn't yet. Um, right, right. And um, so that's why the WHO says, you know, yeah, it's contained. Okay, it's contained in a way, um, sure. but it's not. I mean, it, it, it does not take very much for it to go, you know, especially sure. when you think about the fact that most of the cases or about 50% of the cases there are, you know, every day they are coming up, are community deaths. So people dying in the community, that means that they have been sick for a while and they are mm-hmm. hiding. They're not mm-hmm. wanting to come forth to be, uh. you know, to be treated. So it takes one person like this to go and, uh, and we don't know. But worse, I, I didn't mention that, but most people who are diagnosed, you know, confirmed cases every day are people that are not coming from a known chain of transmission. That means that we have wow. no idea how they got this thing. So that means that there are chains of transmission out in the bush and we don't know. And so they could be, you know, they could be in South Sudan one day, they could be in Rwanda one day. What do we know? They can be in, in Goma. I mean, everybody's dreading that uh, it all go to a big city. And we all know what it did in Liberia, this, you know, in, in Monrovia, this wasn't, this wasn't a pretty story. So, so yeah, I think there, there is a lot of worries with this thing. And today was the worst day of the whole nine months of the epidemic with 18 cases in one day. So <laughs> it's uh, pretty mind boggling. I'm, I'm sure. So uh, if it did start to spread to, you know, further into Africa, areas that, I mean, some are a little more stable or a little more developed, some, some mm-hmm. less so. Mm-hmm. What, uh, what factors would be similar to, to what we're, we're facing here? Would we see other issues of, of uh, armed conflict? Would we see other uh, anthropological issues that are similar? Um, h- how does that change? Yeah, I mean, it depends on the country. There are three, three or four bordering, bordering uh, uh, North Kivu. So, uh, depending, some countries, you know, Rwanda has a much better system in place. You know, South Sudan is is getting ready. I know we have an MSF team in South Sudan. They've been since August uh, thinking about okay, what what if Ebola comes? What if we have a case? You know, getting prepared. So, I think. I think the countries, you know, they're they're beefing up their borders and and maybe putting a, a you know a, a treatment center just in case there is a case with fever uh, mm-hmm. that comes through. So, I think there definitely is some preparation on on all those uh, border countries, um, and then it all depends 
it all depends, yeah, if they get them and then what what their the system that's that's in place for them. But uh, it it makes a huge difference to to have something in place and to have people access, mm-hmm. you know, health services and and uh, and have a response uh, that's ready. I mean, it, it, it yeah, it makes sure. a big difference. Sure, sure, sure. So uh, I have to ask before we move on to our sort of action steps here. After those years at Microsoft and and then dreaming of of doing more and all the places you you have been and all the people you've helped, uh, do you feel like you're on the right path now personally? Do you do you have any doubts? Do you have any major frustrations or things you would do differently going forward? Yeah, no, I. I mean, I think I have the best job in the world, but I mean, lots of people can say that, but I, I truly do. Um, I, I think I work for an organization that lets me do uh, uh, really incredible things. Uh, we we are, uh, you know, we, we get to be super responsive very fast, you know, when there are any health issues or any natural disasters of any kind. So Mozambique being, you know, one of them, uh, an, an, an epidemic, an outbreak. Um, I get to work with incredible people trying to to do something, you know, trying to improve whatever it is that uh, is not working. Yeah, no, I this you know this this is uh, this is this is good for me. I'm in the field, so I really I'm not just sitting behind the desk pontificating or you know working far away from uh, beneficiaries. I'm I'm right there with them, and so I I really feel that I have a good good understanding of, of what it is that they're struggling with, what it is that, you know, that they need. And, uh, and I think that, uh, then I can, I can really try to, to design, uh, the best package of activities to, to respond to, to what, uh, the issues may be. So, yeah, I, I, I don't, and I, I feel sort of useful, even though sometimes, you know, in, uh, for example, uh, in this Ebola outbreak, it's been incredibly frustrating. You know, so it is not always paradise, but it's still meaningful. You know, regardless, it's still I'm still trying to do the right thing, and I'm still uh, not just me, you know, everybody, but still fighting for the right thing. And uh, and I think that's what you know life life is about. You know, I mean, it's in DRC, but uh, it, it can be the same in uh, you know advocating for people in. Uh, in uh, Washington D.C. or in, in mm-hmm. Detroit, in some district, about is, is the same. You know, it's just trying to to give a voice and and think about uh, people who who don't have the same privilege that we do and try to improve their 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 lives. Seems like common sense, but <laughs> it's not, and wow. it's so rare that somebody. You know, it's you're such that's such a rare thing. I mean, you, wow. you just described your all the shit that you go through, and then you said, "I have the best job in the world." I mean, you are. You are one of a kind. It is inspiring as hell. Yeah, yes, but, it is. But you're nice. But 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 I mean, I'm I'm lucky too that that uh, you know what I've done before has put me in a position that I can do that. Not everybody, you yeah. know, gets you know. Uh, many people would, I'm sure, would love to do these kinds of things, but they have jobs and then they, they they just can't think beyond that job, right? I mean, it's a uh, Sure. I'm, uh, I work in a post office. I work this, and and to and to say, okay, I'm going to go and and do something in DRC, or I'm going to go in in uh, in in the pits of uh, Appalachia and work in dental clinics. I mean, not everybody has the 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 means to do that, you know, or the time, or or uh, sure. and and for me, my 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 years at Microsoft give me some, you know, some luxury. 
what it is that I wanted to do. So, so I think there are, Americans are super generous. You know, I, I found Americans actually being one of the. I'm French to start, so so uh, I'm, I'm not a, an American-born person, but I find Americans to be incredibly generous people. Probably the most generous people that I've met, and 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 so I, I respect you know everybody you know wherever they come from will contribute whichever way that they can. You know, and not everybody can do what I do. But it doesn't mean that what I do is is more important than what somebody else is doing. You know, at every at every level, it's important. That's wow. just wonderful to hear. <laughs> so, Karin, from a position of relative safety, our our goal is to provide specific action steps that our listeners can take uh, to support you with your mission. Uh, mm-hmm. And you know, we can we can use our our voice, our vote, and our dollar. Uh, so let's get into that. What can our Listeners, what can we all do? What could, what questions can we ask? Actionable questions can we ask uh, our representatives to to help support you and what you're doing all the way over here well, in I America? Think, I mean, <laughs> I think I think it's way higher. I think we need universal health care. You know, I mean, forget about DRC for for a moment, or forget about you know the the rest of the world. Let's think about our country. We need universal health care because. What I'm seeing is, 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 you know, the importance of health. If you're not healthy, you can't do anything. And if you don't have a, a health system in place where people of all means are taken care of and can have some guarantee mm-hmm. that they can, you know, access like basic medicine, then, then, then this is not working. And our country, you know, the United States is not even close to being there. So, so I would ask, you know, our representatives to go and, and pass, uh, you know, first of all, get rid of Trump. And then second of all, uh, put, you know, go and implement universal health care. Go and look at Japan, look at France, look at Germany, do something. You know, we, we already have Medi, which was Medicare, Medicaid. I never know. Right? Yeah, I always get sure. those two confused. But uh, Medicare, I think, for the old people, take this one, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. make it into making it into universal healthcare. Give sure. everybody the basic, you know, healthcare that they have the right to. And then uh, and then I think I would be, you know, this would be my my most important there are people in the United States have done uh, uh, volunteer dental clinics in Appalachia. And there are yeah. people at twenty seven years old that were pulling all the teeth out because they have had yeah. no access to dental care whatsoever. Sure. And they don't have any money. To go to that, and that's not yeah. acceptable. We are the richest I, country in the world. I, I have a friend who who did exactly that, ran a dental clinic like that um, outside San Diego, which is not Appalachia, and still saw people that I mean, you would be someone someone who's lucky enough to and and rich enough to have healthcare would be horrified at at, at how long these people have gone without care of that nature. Yeah. Well, what about? What about specific to your mission? What what about uh, folks? What about the, with their dollar? Uh, any specific places um, that can make the biggest difference right now, uh, and I guess in the long term as well. Uh, I mean, as far as uh, it's worth to put the dollars on on what particular uh, on on a particular organization, you mean, or or I just yeah yeah literally, uh, we're, we're, you know, we're going to give them the website. You know, is is it Doctors Without Borders? Are there other folks? Yeah, um, I mean, that, that are also I mean, just you know, as helpful. I don't want to, yes, that of course. Go Doctors Without Borders. You know, I think it's dot org, uh, MSF USA. 
Uh, and you bet, give your daughters there because we don't take money from uh, government. Uh, so, and so it means that uh, the money comes from individuals and individuals mm-hmm. allow us to be the fastest respond- responding uh, uh, NGO. Um, we have uh, incredible means thanks to you know individuals to to respond to catastrophes. We went, we were in, in Mozambique after the cyclone, maybe two days after, and uh, when color outbreak, the color outbreak uh, broke here, we were able to respond super fast. And these kinds of things are only done when we, you know, if you don't have to write proposals to ask for funding and justify what it is that you want to do. Of course, we all have to justify in some ways, but we have the means and we can directly uh, we can directly respond. We can we can be very fast because we have those those dollars in our bank account, and we can we can just go. We don't have to wait for a response and then go. And it's often too late. So um, sure. I'm uh, absolutely doctors without borders is uh, is the place I would ask people to to go and give their dollars to. Um, could you just take uh, just a, a quick minute uh, and tell us a little bit more about the organization? Uh, how big is it? H- how many, you know, h- how big is the staff? Where else are you guys in the world? Nothing extensive, mm-hmm. just so people understand yep. uh, what else you guys are up to and how it works. I think this organization is over 50 years old. They started in South Sudan, I don't, you know, back way back when uh, in the Biafra War. Uh, where people were dying of starvation. And so there was a, a doctor called Bernard Kouchner who, uh, who went there and uh, started this organization. And he, you know, he, he basically had a bunch of volunteers and, uh, and they tried to, to save all those people. Since then, it's become a huge organization that's, uh, that uh, spans uh, several operational centers in Paris and Brussels in uh, Amsterdam, um, there is in the U.S. Uh, we have a, a big presence, especially uh, um, uh, mostly as support and, and you know uh, um, for donors to uh, to to contribute to. We we work um, pretty much everywhere in the world where we're needed. We're impartial. Uh, we're uh, uh, independent. So we've worked. You know, we work a lot in conflicts. Uh, we are very respected. I think we got, uh, I don't think I know, we had the Nobel Peace Prize in 1999 mm-hmm. uh, for the work that we've done. We're in Afghanistan, we're in Pakistan, you know, we were pretty much everywhere where there is a, a need. Um, it's Most of the time it's a health need. I mean, uh, doctors without borders, it's mostly medical, but uh, um, it, uh, we have an immense uh, logistics force that uh, that allows us to do also the work that we need to do. So we're there for you know, natural disasters, pretty much anything that's a catastrophe we respond to. We stay there as long as we need. Even though we're emergency, there are projects that we have that are very long-term. For example, in South Africa, we're very, very invested into HIV, and mm-hmm. uh, which is still a huge issue there, with, I think, uh, close to 25% of the population having HIV. Uh, and oh, in certain shit. populations, 60%. In Mozambique, actually, it's about 30%. So, so it's another area. So, 
Um, so Jeez. it's a mix of emergency and long-term uh, uh, investments in, in countries. In Congo, we've been there for many, many years, and, and we are really doing a, a big, big projects to, mm-hmm. you know, that, that, that can, you know, it can be vaccination campaigns, it can be responses to epidemics, to outbreaks, it can be uh, building a trauma hospital in a war zone. It's, uh, it's all these kinds of things. That's, that's, sure. that's what we do. It's incredible. It sounds like more or less the best place to to send your cash. Yeah, we have we have a feeling that you probably have some pretty important things to do, so uh, we we won't keep you too much longer. Thank you so so much for for talking with us today and make and making time for us in the middle of your if your wild schedule. Yeah, uh, we just have a few more questions. If you uh, if you have a, a second, yeah, let's Go for it. Let's, let's bring this home uh, a little more existential. Karn, when was the first time in your life when you realized you had the power of change or the power to do something meaningful? Oi. Uh, <laughs> wow. That's, you know, it's actually probably later in my life. Uh, uh, and so I would say when I started working with Axel Dalboros, when I, you know, when I could, uh, I had the experience of life uh, that I had, that I was bringing to the table. But then I had, you know, I was working within a place where they would also give me the means to effect those changes. So, mm. so, so probably then. So, you know, when I, when I received my master's in public health and started working on, on the Syrian refugee crisis, I, you know, I could see that, and it might not be big, the change that I might affect, but, but, uh, but, um, but yeah, that might be the place. Now, of course, I can talk about my kids where I have people control of them, especially when they were, <laughs> you know, very little. But that has nothing sure. to do with what we're talking about. So. Sure, sure. Well, you must be inspiring as hell to them. Sometimes <laughs> only. <laughs> uh, well, I, I'm, I'm, I'm a dad, and uh, Brian will be one day, and I, I can, will. I can only hope to, uh, you know, inspire one 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 hundredth of uh, what you have done. Um, uh, Karn, who is, who is someone in your life specifically that's positively impacted your work in the past six months? In the past six months, mm-hmm. somebody in my life who positively impacted me in the last six months. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. uh, you, you can say Brian. I mean, you know, let's no. Right. put it all. No, no. I, can, I can tell you something that in the past six months, I mean, my brain has been so focused on the stuff that I was doing that it could be a a, a patient or someone you work alongside. Anyone? My my husband just gives me so much freedom to go do and to do what I want and what I you know what I what I feel inspired by. That you know he would definitely be an inspiration, but it's an indirect inspiration. Um, (laughs) No, I mean it's. You know, it's I, it's 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 not as romantic as that. Sadly for me, um, I'm just this is this is what I this is what I do because this is what I believe in. There isn't per se, you know. Sometimes I see I see good things, you know. So yes, there might be a patient that I go, oh yes, but but there are so many other stories where I go, oh fuck this, you know, I'm out of there. So so <laughs> it. No, really. I mean, you know, I can be our feet so many times that could get me out of there. Why am I still here? That that it's hard. So at the end of the day, I don't think in this way. I just 
this is my job. This is, I know this is, I, I do this because I believe in, in what I do. And I believe in, in the, the organization that I work for. Uh, I see the shit that happens every day, you know, every, you know in this world. And, um, but I don't, I, I sadly maybe, but I don't, I, I'm not, I don't have a good story always. That when I have more sad stories than good stories, sadly. <laughs> wow. I feel like that comes with the job a little bit. Um, but you seem to maybe, handle yeah. it. Seem to handle it pretty well, which is a good segue to Brian's question. Uh, Karen, when you feel overwhelmed, what, what do you do oh. specifically? As Brian says, what's your, what's your car in time? What's your car in time? <laughs> I, so that's a tough one, you know? Um, so I write, uh, I don't blog or anything, but I've, I've written some pieces. Uh, so for example, what was I in, um, in West Africa? I think I, I saw actually, you know, I, I came upon him in the morning. I went to the Ebola treatment center and I just walked and, and looked left. And then I was like, what the hell is this? And it was uh, the body, you know, she wasn't dead yet, but she was almost dead of a kid. Um, but uh, at the end stages of Ebola, some people are affected in their brain. And so they, they, they become, mm. you know, sort of. Um, they meander places. They don't know where they go, who they are. And so she had walked naked in the middle of the night and was trying to leave. And I found her under uh, cardboard boxes that were completely soaked by the rain, you know. And, and it, it sounds maybe this, this, this sadly romantic. It's not at all. It's exactly how it was. And, and I was so angry because, because one, you know, this kid, I knew was going to die and it was, she had come too late, but also we at that time were so way over our head with people dying left and right. And I was having, you know, like piles of bodies every day in front of me. And here was another one. And I couldn't do the most basic things I couldn't do. I didn't have the tools. So, and so I just went home or I went, I don't, not home, but someplace close. And I, and I just started writing, you know, an article. And so these kinds of things do me good. And I've, I've done this a few times since. And then, so that's sort of a cathartic way for me to be, to, to deal with things. Other than that, I don't deal with things very well, to be very honest. I don't, uh, you know, it's, it's very people, I come home and, and it's a complete disconnect between what it is that I do and what people do over there. And um, as much as my friends try to be interested, um, um, I, there is no way they they can. At least for me, I I I don't even. I'm not even interested in trying to explain to them. I don't even do this with my husband, by the way. <laughs> but <laughs> but it's because it it it's it's too disconnected. It's too science six science fictiony, you know, in a way. Uh, mm-hmm. Not everything, huh? but 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 often these, especially these emergency missions, and so and so I don't talk about it, uh, and so that's not good, obviously, because a lot, you know, when you come back from Mosul and you, you have seen the things that we have seen, you clearly need to have some sort of uh, some sort of a something happen mm-hmm. to you to uh, get the stuff out of your system, and it's the same with Ebola, and it's the same with you know everything. And so I'm not very good at doing that, but at least writing helps a little bit, but I'm mm. too lazy to write too much. So, 
Uh, Even a little bit. Lazy counts, is not the word I would yeah. probably use to describe you. But <laughs> I I do appreciate you uh, sharing that and and being honest about how difficult it is and and how hard it can be to to deal with things. Um, I I think some folks probably assume that that someone like yourself who goes and 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 does this job uh, so relentlessly and and so proactively is probably pretty great at dealing with these things or that, uh, or, or they've become numb to it in some way. And, um, I think that's probably a fallacy, uh, at least in a lot of cases. So it's, it's nice to hear, um, that it's, that it's still hard and, and it, it the, the disconnect yeah. doesn't surprise me. Um, we, we are very yeah. removed from it here, uh, thankfully, but, um, you know, hopefully conversations like these can make us feel a little more connected and, and understand what it takes and and what it's like over there. It it truly is a a different world. Uh, Brian, why don't you bring it home? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Kind of. Uh, Karin, if, if you could Amazon prime one book to Donald Trump, what book would that be? Um, we've had every recommendation in the world from the little prince to, uh, to to crossword puzzles, to uh, to novels, you know, whatever you would like. Assume it would make an impact of some sort. I would I would love to hear what you think. We have a we have a fun list that folks can go on to and and they can order the books and send them to the White oh, House. But I, I'm always curious. Me that question before, so I was thinking about that. Uh, That's okay. You can also send it to oh, us later. I mean, you know, uh, yeah, I I can do that. I mean, one I have so many books, but. You know, there are some French, like some. There are some good stuff that would be really. That he would Trump attempting to read it. French would be a fascinating. Experiment. No, no, you're right, you're right, you're right. I mean, um, English. Yeah, it's. Oh, I'm be, let give me give me the 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 some time, and yes. uh, I'm going to think yeah, about no it tonight because I don't. Of course, I want to pick the right one for him. That sounds perfect. <laughs> that sounds perfect. I, I, I'm delighted that you are that you care. Uh, so much. So uh, we've asked so much of you. Last thing, if if you could take a minute and and say anything else, uh, you use this as a a platform of some sort. Just just a minute. Anything you'd like to say, speaking truth to power in some way. Yeah. No. I mean, thank you for having me. First of all, on on, on your podcast. Um, um, I hope that uh, people have found it interesting. I think uh, go vote Trump out of this office. Get universal care on the table so that everybody has access to healthcare. That's what I see every day as the biggest need um, and what makes the biggest difference. And then, you know, care about care about things. And I think Americans already do, but really look at your neighbor, care about your neighbor, care about uh, you know uh, maybe your neighbors five streets down. Uh, we don't we don't spend enough time taking the time to to do these things. We're running around, you know, a rat race, uh, opening 15, you know, like on the internet all the time, on our Facebooks and everything like mm-hmm. this. And, and we, we've forgotten to be human beings and, and, and taking the time for things. Just, just be with your friends, have a beer, you know, have a glass of wine, whatever it is, um, read a book, uh, to me, we 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 need to get back to to who we used to be. You know, we, we were better mm-hmm. human beings than this. Well, 
you've set some admirable goals. Um, we will do our best to, uh, uh, to, to reach up for them. Uh, certainly. Yeah. We, we, we cannot thank you enough. I, it, it seems like a ridiculous question. Is there somewhere <laughs> listeners can follow you online or your work or, or anything yeah, like that? Keep up with you. You know, I don't, I don't blog. I don't like this, but if they want, they can go and read. Sometimes I write articles. So I've, I've written a few, a few pieces. Um, so I think, you know, somewhere on NPR, somewhere on the New York times. Uh, so if they want, they can go and read that. Otherwise, I don't know. Uh, um, I think they can, they can follow MSF work in general, sure. but, sure. Uh, yeah, well, um, that, that works for us. Excellent. That works for us. That's good enough. Uh, yeah. Yep. Uh, I, I would say that is good enough. Yes, Karen. Um, uh, thank you. Um, so very much for, for taking the time today. I know it's very late at night there. Uh, I know you were attempting to take half a day off today and we demolished that. Just ruined I, it. I apologize. Uh, no, no, you didn't even demolish that because it was, it, I didn't even manage to get my afternoon off. So I'm going to try to move. Oh, God. All right. Well, uh, let yeah. us know if no, you need us to write a like note to somebody to get you out <laughs> of school. Um, Brian, Brian is very persuasive. We, we might even just yeah, send Brian. You, 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 I'm coming. Oh, get ready. Awesome. Brian, Brian, come to Mozambique. No, no, no. They tried to get me there. But you know, it's, it's always this. You're here for yeah. a certain amount of time and you just, sure. and you just don't stop. And so that's wow. it. No, no. <laughs> well, thank you for taking time. I hope this has been uh, cathartic or, or something for you. Um, thank you for all that you do. And, yeah. and, and I do hope that we can check in again with you sometime soon to continue to learn more about uh, what's out there and, and what we can all do to help. Totally. This was a lot of fun. Thank you so much for uh, for you guys taking the time. <laughs> Quite literally the very least we could do. Yeah. Um, all right, Carney, we love uh, it. get some sleep and thank you so much. We really appreciate it. Okay. Thank you. Thanks to our incredible guest today and thanks to all of you for tuning in. We hope this episode has made your commute or awesome workout or dishwashing or fucking dog walking late at night that much more pleasant. As a reminder, please subscribe to our free email newsletter at importantnotimportant.com. It is all the news most vital to our survival as a species. And you can follow us all over the internet. You can find us on Twitter at importantnotimp. Uh, just so weird. Also on Facebook and Instagram at Important Not Important, Pinterest and Tumblr, the same thing. So check us out, follow us, share us, like us, you know the deal. And please subscribe to our show wherever you listen to things like this. And if you're really fucking awesome, rate us on Apple Podcasts. Keep the lights on, thanks. Please. <laughs> and you can find the show notes from today right in your little podcast player and at our website, importantnotimportant.com. Thanks to the very awesome Tim Blaine for our jamming music, to all of you for listening, and finally, most importantly, to our moms for making us. Have a great day. Thanks, guys. Thanks.